the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello, listener land. Welcome to another exciting episode of I Was There Too. This is the show where I and Matt Gorley talk to people present in the great scenes of cinema history. Today, a first for I Was There Too, I talked to Mark Evan Jackson from a film that is currently still in theaters, which meant I had to shower, get dressed, leave my house, get in my car, and drive to a theater to watch it. I struggled to scribble endless notes in a little field notes flip book that just ended up looking like the chicken scratch of a madman but I was able to decipher most of them and persevere and have a great interview with Mark. I think you'll enjoy it, and make sure to stay tuned after the interview for a clip from an upcoming podcast miniseries by none other than my housemate, Amanda Lund, in a follow-up to her brilliant podcast, Complete Woman. This is called The Complete Joy. It will be available today on Stitcher Premium and Howl.fm or whatever you subscribe to, and it's worth it for this podcast alone. It has guests like Andy Daly, Mark McConville, Maria Blasucci, Molly Hockey, yours truly. I really think you'll enjoy it. So take a listen to a small but not entirely representative clip of this wonderful podcast. All right, that's all the business we have to cover, except to say, since this is a film that is currently in theaters, spoilers abound. Not just spoilers, but pretty much every spoiler for the film. So if you haven't seen the film, shower. Get dressed, get in your car, go to the theater, watch the film, and still listen to this episode. Even if you haven't seen the film, listen to the episode, because download numbers matter. I don't know. You have all the information you need. It's your call. Do what you will, but you don't want to miss this episode. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. The film, Kong Skull Island, the year 2017. The role, Landsat Steve. The actor... Mark Evan Jackson. Well, Mark Evan Jackson, this is the first time I've watched a movie for this show in a dark theater, not knowing the fate of the subject of my interview. Mm. I was very nervous for you knowing that this was like a man on a mission film and how that usually plays out. And it made the experience a little personal and the stakes high at the thought of losing a friend. But then... The leader of your scientist party, the Landsat guy, played by John Ortiz, and every other single Landsat guy gets killed, Mm -hmm. except for you. So then I start to think, (laughs) he's going to make it. He's going to be the last of the Blue Jackets. But alas, no. So I want to start this interview with talking about your death line, or more appropriately, your acceptance of death line. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You just say, oh dear. I do. And I will say ahead of time that there are spoilers. Apparently there are spoilers that will be present. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to start right in with them. (laughs) As you are just flattened by Kong's foot. Correct. So how did you approach that? Knowing you have a great death line, you're going to be killed by one of the most iconic cinema creatures of all time. Mm -hmm. What were your thoughts? Well, you know, I, uh, 
this is a layered thing. That there are lots <laughs> of stories uh, present here. Initially, uh, first of all, my character was not in the movie. Um, my character didn't exist. Uh, you mean the script originally? Or what do you mean? Yes. Yeah. That. Um, I thought I you auditioned. had some alternate fan theory where you are just in someone's mind like Cameron and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> Wait, is he not in the movie? No, there's a there's a fan theory that everything exists within Cameron's mind. That Ooh. Ferris Bueller is like a Fight Club alter yeah. ego of his. Oh, I like that. Have you done that show yet? No, I don't. I don't go in for that shit. Um, so, I read for John Ortiz's role. I read oh. for the role of Victor Nieves, um, and Jordan Vote Roberts called a couple years ago. Um, I guess what, like September of 2015, he called and said. Um, I really want to hire John Ortiz for that role. And I was like, hey, that's great. He had just done this great arc on uh, Togetherness with Melanie Linsky. And I was like, I really like that guy. Yeah, he's great. And um, and I was like, that's cool. Thank you for, you know, for seeing me on it. And then Jordan said, what if we took every time in the script that it says one of the Landsat guys says or does something <laughs> and made it you? And I was like, that sounds amazing. And so he was like, basically, you're an extra right now, but, you know, over the course of subsequent drafts of the script and as we improvise on set like you'll have um you know you'll be in the movie and I was like I don't yeah I'm in like that sounds great so um initially you know the the scripts go through various drafts um initially my death was much different initially my death in the script uh was then taken by a different actor so you saw my death, um, the, the one as originally scripted. Um, I was giddy, though, when I got the draft of the script showing this one because, oh, dear, is something I say in life. That's what I do, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was clear that it was written for me because, <laughs> you know, a couple months into the, into shooting the movie, we get a we get new pages or a new draft. And uh, I'm scrolling through, scrolling through to see how long I last and uh, if it's a cool death. And the words on the page are, Oh dear. And I was like, oh man, that was a hundred percent written for me and I can't wait to execute it. Here's what I love about that. You're playing this like sympathetic technocrat mm-hmm. and you realize your own death. You have a split second as that foot's coming down yes. and you don't rage against the dying of the light. You mm-hmm. just accept it in this sort of scientist way of like, oh, what's this going to cost? Or what are the implications of this? And <laughs> I agree with how that. is this going to cause waves? The, um, that's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, there's – obviously there's a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. So what um, what just happened before that moment was this whole roller coaster of emotion. Like we're trying to um, – some of which you see. You don't see it necessarily on my face, but you do see it on the faces of the other actors. Like we're following Colonel Packard into this, you know, on the what, – what may very well be a fool's mission, a fool's errand to try to kill this thing. And as we're – you know, lighting this lake on fire and and firing bullets and explosions and and flamethrowers and all that. Um, you're you're kind of like why are, why are we killing this thing that's keeping the island in check? That's keeping the natural balance. And so there's like rage and you know Rambo firing of guns. But then there is also you know when we shoot Kong and he and he falls flat into the lake. Um, then you're like oh shit. Well, we did it. Like, oh no! And there's regret, and there's yeah. empathy, and and sympathy, and and you you wish you hadn't done that. And then you know it seems we're successful, and then he rears up and splashes fiery water on my friend Marlowe, and um and I run from that. So you know you don't. I mean, obviously, I'm happy to be a part of this project at any level, um, but there are some things that were left out, some of that connective tissue. So it was uh, that resignation of oh dear came after like. Die, die, die. Oh, no, we did it. We were successful. What have we done? What have we done? Oh, dear. You know. <laughs> so did you have a scene where that actually got to see a little bit of your regret in that? It was um, – it's all kind of uh, montage footage of um, of all of us up against the edge of the lake when Sam has the torch in his hand and uh, the lake's covered in napalm and uh, and he's luring Kong towards us that we're firing, firing, firing. And then when – uh, we shot scenes with, where, you know, Kong is splashed down and we think we've been successful and, like, there are tears and and honest regret, yeah. Uh, well, not to take it to anything superficial, but did you just love that jacket you got to wear in that movie? I love that jacket. It's very you. It is kind of me. Yeah. I didn't – it's me in a way that I wouldn't realize. Like, it's not a 
It's not a Barracuda jacket. Like, it's kind of a... But it's 70s. Year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the second I put it on uh, at my first fitting in Hawaii, it was like, oh. And I was like, what's the story with these? And and they said, Jordan had them designed. Jordan had them made. They're made after, a, like, a very NASA flight jacket kind of thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, these... um. Some of these might go missing. Did you get to give one? Or you can't say? All of that stuff is property of the studio. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> so you'd worked with Jordan Vote Roberts before, right? In Kings of Summer? I had, yeah. I'd worked with him a bunch. Um, uh, starting, you know, back in the day of web videos and stuff. Um, when my friend Carrie Clifford and I first launched um, uh, a comedy duo that we do called Sky and Nancy Collins from Orange County, um, Jordan, I think he was working with... Uh, T.J. Miller and um, Mike Bridenstine and um, Kyle Kinane and a bunch of those dudes from Chicago. And we crossed paths, I think, at UCB one night. And then they invited us to come and start shooting videos with them and stuff. But, yes, I, I've known him for a while, and we uh, he directed me in Kings of Summer. How does he go from that kind of smaller indie film to something like this? How does that even happen? Do you know? Uh, I think that's a fairly common theme these days that, you know, a successful Sundance director that makes a, you know, a phenomenal film for a million dollars or, or thereabouts, um, is then given $200 million to go. <laughs> I and usually make- see it in like a similar genre jump or something, but mm. that's, that's what was so interesting about this. So Jordan is a fascinating character. You know, we, we throw around terms like genius and, and stuff really easily these days, but he really is an interesting dude who super gets it. Like mm-hmm. he's a nerd for the stuff that he loves, which is video games and monster movies and sci-fi and I mean, all cinema. And he truly, I, I don't know where it comes from. I think just time on task, but he is one of the very few people that I know. I mean, I know a handful, but he's really up there that understands like story and character and comedy and drama and lenses and light. Like he, he understands how to frame a scene. Um, he unabashedly loves like Michael Bay. Like he loves, you know, action movies like yeah. bullets and cars. And um, what was it? Was uh, was it Martin Lawrence and Will Smith? Oh, Bad Boys. Bad Boys. Yeah. Bad Boys Two. I think he legit loves, which oh. I think he takes a lot of flack for. Yeah, that's that's a much maligned film. I think he loves it. Um, uh, so much so that he sent it up in a show called Mashup on Comedy Central a, a few years ago. Um, it was a mashup of uh, Bad Boys and Boys to Men. It was Bad Boys to Men, <laughs> and it was pretty great. It was you know a a, a doo wop ballad w- during like a a gunfight, <laughs> like a Reservoir Dogs gunfight. Um, so he's just one of these cats that you know he's very young. There's no reason he should be as good at, at it as he is, and he super gets you know like. The, the references in Kong that I'm sure I will never understand are deep. And, you know, the, the allusions to other films and to scenes. And, and I just love his attention to detail. And that's, he's put that in everything he's ever done. Um, you know, there's a scene in Kong at the top where uh, Miyavi and, and the guy playing young John C. Riley are fighting. And uh, the guy draws his katana, his sword. And you just see the inscription on the sword sort of glisten. You know, and it's stuff like that that I'm sure that's a reference to something deep in, you know, comic book or martial arts lore. And I'm sure what that says, it might say death before dishonor. I'm not sure. But, uh-huh. like, um, it means something. Like, nothing's random. Yeah, I had fun picking some things out. I mean, obviously, and it's been written about the allusions to Apocalypse Now are For all sure, over yeah. this film. But yeah. even the fact that Tom Hiddleston's character is named James Conrad feels like Joseph Conrad. It does? It's a little. And even though you're credited on IMDb as Landsat Steve, they uh, say your full name is Steve Woodward. Correct, yeah. And it's the heart of Watergate at this time when this film takes place. Um, that is a secondary illusion because Woodward Avenue is the main drag up the middle of the city of Detroit where Which Jordan, you, Jordan you and I are, are both from. from. Oh. Yeah. So there's no Watergate connection there? No. Well, I don't Woodward know. I mean, the, you, you know, well. uh, mark my words, you'll never see a more screwed up time in Washington. <laughs> One of the first lines in the film. Yeah. Yeah, that was something. I mean, it comes out of the gate with a bang. Pretty great. I mean, I was really, I saw the movie a couple months ago at Legendary and in a screening. And, you know, you, like, you're sitting in there as the lights are fading to black and you're like, what's this going to be? Like, we shot for six months on three continents. Like, I trust Jordan and, and, you know, the studios, obviously, uh, Legendary and Warner Brothers make great movies. But it's like... What uh, there could be a thousand permutations of this film, right? 
And so you're like, what's this going to be? And the second it begins, you're like, I mean, that very, it's, what Jordan, I think, has successfully accomplished in a lot of this film is, like, it's scary and fun and exciting, but it's also hilarious. Like, even the very dramatic beginning, like, they, they pan up into a bright sun, and then you hear young John C. Riley falling through the sky. Uh-huh. You know, like, you hear, it's a cart- it's basically Wile E. Coyote, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. it's basically a coyote falling off a cliff kind of thing, and you hear his voice like, ah, and, you know, He's just merged all these things. There, there are funny moments and human moments within fight scenes. There are really funny scenes that end with scary stuff happening. Like, um, I don't know. He's really good at it, man. I think he's got a bright, bright future. <laughs> Did you have any concept of what it was going to be? And, or you just really were like, I, I have no idea how this is going to come. I mean, you knew the script. I knew the script. Yeah. But, you, you know, they, the, the final rewrite is the edit of, of any film, I suppose. So you just didn't know, like, on a selfish level, you're like, am I still in this? Because, you know, especially as you're seeing no, names scroll across the opening titles, you're like, oh, that's right. There are a billion movie stars in this movie. But huh? you're in there pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your name, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, it, you know, you don't know what to anticipate. And right out of the gate, that scene with um, – that happens back in World War II, and then uh, the scene with um, Corey Hawkins and John Goodman getting, you know, going to Washington to try to seek this piggyback mission with Landsat. Um, it, uh, you know, y- y- sitting in that screening room, you're like, "Oh man, this is a movie already. Like, this is about to be a thing." And then the opening titles of, you know, the the news footage and Watergate and Vietnam and. Um, the scientific stuff, like it's all, it really felt great. Um, you mentioned IMDb, and I do love that uh, all the characters are like Woodward, Packard, uh, uh, of course they're escaping me now, you know, Randa, yeah. all these like last name characters, and mine is Landsat Steve. I know. <laughs> the first day I got to Hawaii and that was on the door of my trailer, I was like, can't we, come on, can't we name it something? It's funny because you you have a full name in the movie and you're still named Landsat Steve. Yeah. But that's just the key to your your character, I guess. That's I don't think anything in my life and career will ever go conventionally. <laughs> so three continents, you went to Hawaii first and then... Three months in Hawaii, two months in Australia, and then a month in Vietnam. The show was in Vietnam for a month. I was only in Vietnam for a, a couple weeks. And did, did you guys do much... In studio work, very little. Where was that? That uh, mostly was in Australia, oh. in the Gold Coast. Uh, Warner Brothers has a movie world there, and um, so they have sound stages. It's a you know, it's Hollywood. I mean, it's a big fat operation. Um, but that was you know, we did very little green screen. I mean, that's what made a lot of this movie really cool and not have to you know pretendy pretend. Like obviously the monsters monsters weren't there, but. Most of our locations were practical. Uh-huh. That's the difference between shooting a, a Kings of Summer and it, you know a two hundred million dollar monster movie. The they took apart, I think, four Huey Vietnam era Huey helicopters, three I think in Los Angeles and one in Washington State. Took them apart, put them in shipping containers, sailed them to Honolulu, put them back together, and we flew around on them. Like, so you really were flying in those things. Yeah. What was that like? It was very scary. And you're firing an M16 all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with full load blanks, um, which gives you an appreciation for, uh, you know, people that do that every day. Because we, you know, we'd have uh, hidden ear protection and stuff. And one time between uh, between takes, I took out one of my earplugs to get notes to, you know, hear the direction and forgot to put it back in. And the second you pull the trigger uh, on the next, you know, on the next shot, you uh, your ear just goes... And it's painful, and and I was asking, you know, we had all these military advisors um, with us throughout, um, some retired Navy SEALs and um, and Australian Special Forces and stuff when we were down there, and you would say to them, like, how you don't wear ear protection in combat, right? And they're like, no. And you're like, well, then how do you do it? And they say, you lose your hearing. And you realize, like, oh, these are the toughest humans on the planet. Yeah. Like, these guys are insane. They sacrifice more than you think. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Like – Lifelong sacrifices of, you know, changes to their, their makeup. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was the difference that we were, you know, we did a little bit of green screen work, but like that ship that they go into that's in the Iwi village and the Iwi villages, like that's all real. They mm-hmm. built the interior of the Wanderer, that, that ship that had washed ashore and that parallax room exists mm-hmm. where, you know, they can tell the stories of Kong and the dweller, the, the skull crawler, um, 
and you know as the as you walk past it and the shapes change kind of thing like that's all there um the lake that uh, that I die in front of in Hawaii you know in the movie the script calls for a lake to be lit on fire so they dug a lake filled it full of water and gas jets and lit it on fire like that was real wow that guy running next to me who's on fire what that was real like they lit him on fire <laughs> yeah we couldn't afford that in kings of summer <laughs> <laughs> so when you say it's horrifying to ride in a Huey, yeah. it's just mortal danger or the motion effects, all of it? So most helicopter pilots, I think, that we worked with have a military background. So they're cowboys by nature a little bit. Yeah. Um, also, a lot of the flying that we did was not first unit stuff. It was second unit stuff. And I, this was the first movie on which I did any, you know, anything major with that. And it's different. Like first unit, you're working with the director and the cinematographer. Uh, and, uh, and everybody's very precious about the talent. And on this, with second unit, and they were totally great. There were no, you know, safety violations or whatever. They're just like, ready? You know, like, and you're like, uh, I have a thousand questions. Like, cool, ask when we land. And so there, I have a video actually up on Facebook um, of the first time that we uh, that we were flying into our uh, our worksite in these helicopters, and it was the scene where we uh, like the Landsat team lands successfully and and starts. You know, we don't run into the monsters. We split off to set up the com- uh, computer equipment to measure the seismic charges and. Uh, so the helicopters come and land, uh, three or four helicopters come and land in this valley in, in Kualoa Ranch on Oahu, and it looks like Vietnam, like it looks really cool. And they mount us all up, and, you know, we're clipped into a 60s or 70s era seatbelt. And um, I'm shooting out the door of the of the helicopter, looking back, and I see the other, the other helicopter take off. Our pilots never were like, okay, here we go, or, you know, and it would be like if this entire room just lifted up, you know, at a 45 degree angle in two planes, like up and to the right. And so you can hear me in this video, like they never warned us that we were ready to leave. I mean, I can hear that we've spun up and are, you know, they've reached the RPMs or whatever. But I'm <laughs> filming it back into my left out the open door of a Huey helicopter, watching this other helicopter take off. And then everything within you just begins moving up and to the right at, you know, 70 miles an hour. And you can hear me in this video go, holy shit. And then you hear Corey Hawkins go, woo! Um, but I mean, it. you know, there are a couple of photographs I'll put up as well where you see me, my left hand is gripping the seat structure Ugh. of the seat next to me. Because um, they fly these things really close to one another. And um, that was another horrifying element. So we made this big turn into the right. I always uh, tell people like, I watched the president's helicopter take off. And it's very gentle and it sort of ascends and tips forward a bit and then follows in that same vector. Yeah, it's basically <laughs> like a Disneyland sky bucket ride. Right. Yeah. These things went corkscrew to the right, <laughs> and then we were facing mountains right away. And, um, and again, these pilots are super pro, and we, you know, we made, I don't know, 40 landings that day probably like to shoot that scene of us offloading all that gear. And so what it means is that you're landing, and they want it to seem dynamic. And again, it's second unit stunts. So they're coming in like – Pretty pretty good clip, and then just, you know, flaring at the end and landing. And there's smoke. They had drops, you know, like into smoke, wind indication, smoke yeah. grenades or whatever. And um, so it's scary. And then you take off, and they're like, good, going again. And you go, and we fly, I don't know how, you know, half a mile away and 500 feet in the air or something. And we're just hovering these two helicopters. And then the one we were in the second one. The first one would dip, and then we, they, we would dip behind them. And you're flying really close, like – Tons could go wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not like there isn't a precedent for helicopter accidents in major Hollywood films. Not that I'm aware of. Um, but you do think about stuff like that. I'm sure. For real. I'm thinking about it now, and I wasn't even there. Yeah. yeah. No, you you are like, hmm, they know we're out here, right? Like <laughs> They've seen Twilight being, they, Zone, right. right? Yeah, they've heard of Twilight Zone. Um, but the, uh, you know, tons can go wrong. These guys are really, really good at it. We, um, we... Landed a few times, and then we would shoot the scene. So it wasn't just our helicopters either. We had uh, camera helicopters yeah. um, that were flying around and, uh, and you know, shooting the movie, obviously, um, from dynamic perspectives. And at one point, the camera helicopter, we were on the ground, and we're, you know, playing the scene of unloading the gear and getting it all set up or whatever. And a camera helicopter, an A-Star, 
came on its nose. Like if it flies like this normally, He's horizontal. holding a cup. I'm yeah, holding a sideways. pint glass. Now I'm holding it vertically. So uh-huh. picture this is the cockpit and this is the tail. Okay. And it, it was about, I don't know, 60, treetop level, maybe 50 yards that way. And it went from 50 yards that way to 50 yards that way in this much time. Vertical. Yeah. Pointing right at us. And it went, bow, and then flew away. And I'm sure they didn't use much of that shot because I know for sure John Ortiz and I were looking dead down the barrel of that camera, <laughs> convinced that that copter was going to crash. So we're watching it going like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then it just flew away and, and went back to one to, to keep shooting the movie. And they were like, okay, going again, going again. And we jumped back in our Huey. And Corey Hawkins and, and John Ortiz and I are like, did you see that? Like, I was certain that was crashing. That was nuts. It was on its nose, right at treetop level. And it must have been moving 80 knots, 90 knots. Like, it was crazy what just happened. And Javier, one of our pilots, turned around and goes, that's nothing. And he's like, oh, man. Like, don't prove it. Yeah. Don't. You don't owe us that. Just feel like something else is coming when yeah. he says that. They're like, that's nothing. Yeah. So, I mean, these guys are good at it. And I guess you have to have a certain, you know, like, it's like being a surgeon. Like, you have to have a certain confidence if you're going to, yeah. if you're going to, you know, go up in a heavier than air aircraft that doesn't glide. Yeah. You know? Like, if something goes wrong, there are things they can do, but it's not like you've got wings. Right. Let's talk about what it was like to work with Kong himself. So sure. You actually had an actor stand in for Kong most of the time? or No. No. That was later. I mean, oh. interestingly, that's... Oh, so he would do that in post. Uh-huh. So... Or, or in a different, a different schedule of the movie, yeah. Okay. Um. And I think a lot of it, I just read an article the other day that I think a lot of that was, you know, hand-drawn by ILM. Like, really? Yeah, they did have Terry Notary do some stuff, but I don't know how much of it they used. And Not they had, at an Andy Serga's level, that kind of thing. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that uh, – so Toby Kebble, who plays Chapman in the movie, he's the guy that sits on that stick bug that yeah. stands up. Who I thought they were calling Chaplin the entire time. Oh, hilarious. I was thinking like, oh, this poor little pastor. That's amazing. Yeah. That's, it was my theater experience wasn't the greatest. Twenty seven minutes of trailers before the film. Is that right? <laughs> it was incredible. That's a, that's too much time. And the sound was off, so that's why. Anyway, go. Oh on. no, was the sound off for Kong? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah, I know. Well, I look forward to seeing it again. Oh please. I mean, I didn't miss anything vital. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and I was taking notes too that are I have them here. Illegible. If I were to ask you these questions, it'd be like in Vietnam is our culture, but I asked that. <laughs> anyway, um, Toby Kebbell did some facial stuff for Kong that I think that they used. You know, oh. he's an amazing dude. That uh, he plays Koba in Planet of the Apes. He plays like the the villain ape yeah. in the Planet of the Apes movies, and he can become an ape. Like he can change the way he moves, and it's insane. So, which was he hired for first, Chapman or? I think Chapman. Yeah, oh, um, but he's got such a you know good mocap uh, performance capture career that um, I think they asked him. I don't know any of this. This is uh, supposition. I didn't ask him about this particularly. But um, Jason Mitchell, uh, who plays Mills in the movie, loves those movies. And when he like, I was there when he found out that Toby was Koba. And he lost his mind. He was like, <laughs> let's talk about this forever. And to- and he totally geeked out. And Toby Kebble, so the deck of a Huey cal- helicopter is, I don't know, how high is this? Three and a half, feet, four feet? Yeah. Um, Toby Kebble was talking about, you know, that what it took to learn how to uh, in- embody these primates. That, um, you know, like they-, they can jump up to something. And then when they jump down, they... He said, we jump – as humans, we jump down from something and we land on like on one foot and keep moving or we land on two feet and stop and then move. They land on two feet and are still moving and you're like, well, I, that doesn't seem like much of a difference. And when he does it, you're like, oh my gosh, you're an ape. Uh-huh. Like you are moving in a different way. You know, he's all hunched like down in a squat. And he can jump from a squat from the ground and land in the on the deck of a Huey helicopter. Like, <laughs> Well, like unassisted and perfectly balanced, and it's just a thing. Was he doing this just as a demonstration for you guys? This is the day that Jordan, uh, that, uh, that Jason found out that uh, that he played Koba in these movies, and we started talking about it. And it was the day that they took us through the helicopter. So you're asking about the helicopters earlier. They they first one of the first days in Hawaii, they have one in a hangar, and we're going through it, and they're like, you know, because they want the actors to not be 
jerking the yoke around and, and they want it realistic. So they're teaching them what some of the overhead toggle switches are and where they might look and the pre-flight checklists and stuff because they want that all to feel authentic and they they want us to feel as as people safe getting on these helicopters. So they tell you what you can grab and what you can't and don't go around the tail and, you know, always stay within the pilot's view as you're boarding and stuff. And they're doing all this. And uh, it was a guy named uh, David Paris, who's a former uh, Royal Navy helicopter pilot and uh, this very cool dude. And obviously um, he, he flew the camera helicopter for Batman versus Superman. So when I, he was wearing a Batman versus Superman hat, I think. And I said, Oh, you know, that you shot that in Detroit. And he said, that he flew a helicopter at 80 miles an hour at 30 feet off the ground up Woodward and up Jefferson and down like between buildings oh in downtown God. Detroit, which is just the coolest thing ever. But anyway, he's, um, he takes us through this thing and he's, you know, got a lovely sort of posh English accent and, uh, he's taking us through and making us feel very comfortable. And the last thing he says is all that said, if you don't have to be on a helicopter, don't be on a helicopter. Jesus. <laughs> it was like, what? well, that just undoes the last 40 minutes. And also I don't have to be here. Like right. uh, this yeah. is elective yeah. in a way, or at least it was at some point. So it's one, you know, I'm, I'm not a super, uh, like, I don't like roller coasters and things like that stuff scares me to death. If I were driving the roller coaster, I think it's a control thing. If I were driving the roller coaster, um, I would be fine. You know that roller coasters, you can't drive them. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> you working on something? Um, uh, I will tell you that when I did the um, Indiana Jones ride at California Adventure or, or Disneyland yeah. or whatever, um, one time I was seated in the sacrificial uh, the driver's, driver's seat. Yeah, and with you the think you can control it? Or? I had a much better experience. <laughs> I had a much better it's experience. It's just a just mental with, thing? It is, yeah. Yeah, okay. No, I'm not, I'm not well. <laughs> um, but yeah, the... Uh, when they took off, like, it was like, oh, no. Like, and then you, I, you know, you find yourself searching the ground going, like, do they have a double for me? Do they have somebody dressed as me? Because I may not be emotionally able to handle this. Like, yeah. this might be too scary. And like all things in life, the second they're like, okay, that's great. Um, we're done. And you're like, can I take a van down? Um, and uh, then it's a tremendous relief and you're thankful for having done it. Yeah. But you know, I don't know. I'm not, I may not have been exaggerating. I, we may have taken off and landed 40 times that day. And it's like, this is really scary every time. Yeah. It you doesn't know? get any easier necessarily. No. Did I, you have any physical driving. issues like motion sickness or anything? No, but they did for some of the dynamic stuff. Um, you know, at the beginning when the, when the squadron makes the Island and, and there's a monkey there, um, they did do some stuff. They dressed our stunt team as us and as other, the soldiers that they play in the movie. And um, and they took them up and they made them puke. The stunt guys. Yeah. Oh, God. Who are superheroes? Like those yeah. guys are uh, mostly like military or gymnasts, which uh, is a funny, yeah. you know, like it's a funny merging of worlds. But they're guys that have a lot of, you know, a lot of capability and a lot of bravado. And they, you know, like they're – and it's fascinating to watch football on Sunday in a bar with these guys because they're in every single commercial. <laughs> um, one of our dudes, there's a there's a, uh, a Daniel Craig Heineken commercial that you probably know yeah. where he gets pulled off a boat yeah. in a uh, – uh, he clips in the bad guy into a, a parachute and he gets sucked off a boat. That's my friend Marla who was on, on fire next to me in Kong. <laughs> like, so all these stuntmen, you know, like it's a fairly limited community and they all, you know, they all know each other and um, – and they're all really good at it. Did your stunt double look anything like you? I've always wanted to have a stunt I didn't double. have a stunt. I had a stand-in, stand uh, okay. which is mostly just somebody sort of your coloration and your height. Yeah. Um, uh, and I had multiples of those. I didn't have a stunt double. Um, I did my own uh, I did my own death. That's <laughs> exciting. What, what was referenced for Kong when you would do these scenes? I mean, were they just basically look in that direction? Because he's so vast. Yep. It wasn't like they had a pinpointed thing that you had to look at. I mean, fascinatingly, it's exactly like doing it for anything else. It's either a you know a tape X on a C stand, uh, but in this yeah, like a tennis ball. But they put up you know like a a, a china ball or something on a um, you know various places that we were shooting because this movie, the scale of this movie was so large. At one point in Hawaii. we had used every crane on the island, every like cherry picker and, and everything. So at one point we were looking up at a mark for Kong that was a cement pumper. You know what I mean? Like a big articulated arm yeah. for pouring cement on the high floors of a high rise. Um, and you're looking and you're like, that's not a crane. And they're like, no, it's a cement pumper. We had to 
Like we needed something taller because they'd used everything on the island at the time. I'd love to think there's an episode of Hawaii Five-0 that is all static shots for one. Right. <laughs> Just because it office. is. Yeah. Um, so it's a, in that sense, it's very similar. And the notes were often like a little higher, a little more scared. You know, like because this Kong was very big. Yeah. And is an adolescent, by the way. So he gets bigger for Godzilla is my understanding. Really? Yeah. I did stay through the credits. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. I had heard about that. So that's very – I really liked the first Godzilla film or the, the 2014 The one. Cranston, yeah. 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 So I'm excited to see where this goes. I'm excited too. I don't know how they do it, but um, I, I'm not a giant dork of the genre, but it was exciting. I knew that they was – you know, that it was going to tee off uh, – tee up Kong versus Godzilla. But when they, you know, showed Mothra yeah. and um, yeah. and some of the other monsters moving Kitra. forward. Yeah. I'm a middling fan of the genre. Are you? you know, not all in, but I enjoy it. But what's the three-headed thing? Is that is King that, is Godira that, or something? Is that Ghidra? Might be. Let me look it up. Isn't it? See? It's, uh, I feel like it's G-H-O-R-I-D-A or something. That's Ghidra. Okay. Yeah. Something. Well, no, now there's King Ghidorah. That's the one I'm thinking of. But yeah. there's also, wait a minute. Yeah, you're right. It's Ghidorah. Yeah. No? Well done. I apologize. <laughs> um Final Fantasy is where Ghidra is. Anyway, uh, okay, I want to talk about something because I had Phil Lamar on this show and mm-hmm. he was yelled at by Samuel L. Jackson in um, Pulp Fiction, in yes, character, sir. and you were as well. Sure. He found it unsettling and real. How oh my gosh, it's the, it's, um, Phil Lamar and I have spoken about this since I got home really? from shooting the movie. Yeah. No, when Sam, uh, there, there are a couple of different times in this uh, film that, that don't make it, that, that we shot. Um, there's the scene, there's some connective tissue. Uh, that's that's not expressed in the movie when I like that I get separated so I land with the Landsat team successfully and then bad things come near us and uh, and I run and then I meet up with Packard's group yeah but they don't show how you meet up with them do they no they don't I was going to ask shot you about it. that too yeah. okay good I so want an answer that's one little one little hiccup where, okay. and nobody's asked me it yet um, like how did you get and it was funny because um, when we were shooting it like wardrobe came to me the, the morning that we were shooting that stuff. And they're like, hey, we've just been through the script. And I, and I was like, shoo, 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 shoo. Like, I read it too. I'm not sure. They'll figure it out. And they did. We shot stuff that, that showed me by myself and, uh, and coming up over a mountain in a clear, you know, like as though I would have run, uh, split off from them and uh-huh. then and come across Packard and, and Relis and Mills and Cole and all those dudes. Um, so there's a scene where we're, you know, we've kind of come down into that riverbed where uh, Shay's eating beans. Yeah. Um, where Cole's eating beans. He also eats those in an instant. They're all there. Then they cut back to him and he's down them. Yeah. Which may be accurate. <laughs> that might be a character choice on his part. Uh, that dude's amazing. His Shay. death, by the way, was incredible. Wasn't it great? Yeah. Because it was just a play on what you think it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's the joke beyond the joke. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's taking a fairly, you know, a set piece and, um, it's so dissatisfying, you know, yeah. like, um, they, I mean, I love what they do that to John Ortiz too. When he, like, they're like, Oh, we're, they got to the back of the button. They're like, Oh, I think they have him saying, Oh, we're going to live. And yeah. then snatch yeah. the pterodactyls or whatever, come and grab him. And then they cut off his arm for no reason. Oh, that was gruesome. It's so great. When you say Shea Wiggum is incredible, what do you mean? He's just a character. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, um, Seems like, it. like we, he's my brother now, like, um, but we, he's, he is also in real life an older brother and I'm in real life a younger brother. And we dialed in that dynamic immediately. <laughs> and I don't know, like, I, you know, it's, it's, it's gravitation. Like it just happens that he's like, Hey, you want some coffee? And you're like, uh, yeah, that does sound good. Like, Get me one too. He's like, Hey man, <laughs> like I don't work for you. And we just had that, you know, that, um, and he would call me, uh, you know, like while we were shooting, Landstat for uh, no reason, like, which is something that like my older brother would do. Like, and you're like, does he know he's getting it wrong? And he's like, he doesn't care. Yeah. Like, probably point? knows. Super doesn't care. Um, so yeah, Shay and Shay's just like, Shay's the real thing. Like Shay can embody, you know, obviously I've seen him before this movie, but um, seeing him in vice principles and things like he's got such nuance to things and he's just a killer in this movie. Like yeah. he's, he's absolutely appears as though a guy that's done several tours in Vietnam and is a little off and, you know, probably has some wisdom, but like, don't sleep near him. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's a weirdo with a knife. Yeah. Um, but no, he's, uh, just phenomenal. 
Um, I was telling the story. Oh, yes, because so in we'll that, get in back that, to Samuel L. Jackson. We'll that, wrap this up. In that, uh, in that scene, uh, in that riverbed, um, uh, Eugene Cordero expresses some concern about, like, to Packer, to Sam. He goes, like, hey, um, you know, some of these guys are civilians. And Sam goes, well, you know, the only difference, the only th- difference between a soldier and a civilian is a gun. And Sam gives me the M16. And I have this, you know, exchange with him, like, what am I going to do with this? And, uh, and I mouth, mouth off to him there and he yells at me and that didn't make the cutting room phone. And then I think the only one that made it right was when I say, uh, we need to go to the North side right now. And he's like, you can do that by us. You can do that, my man, by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, when Sam yells at you, like it feels personal. Um, it feels there was a scene that we did at the Down Sea Stallion that didn't make the movie either. Um, and we were kind of, it was kind of loose and we were improvising a little bit and I improvised a line and Sam darted his eyes at me in a way that was like, it felt like him saying like, how dare you speak? And it felt awful. And Sam's tremendous. Like he's obviously, uh, you know, really good at it and a phenomenal actor, but like it does, it's a, uh, like it, it lands. Like when he yells at you, you feel like you spend the rest of the day going like, I shouldn't be here. Like, he oh. hates me, and why should I be here? He's really powerful. What do you think was behind that darting of the eyes? Is it like you're messing up the integrity of the scene? You're messing up the efficiency of my work day? Or just like, this is my scene? Or your best guess? I mean, you, as a, as an insecure human being, the answer is all of the above. <laughs> like, you're sure, like, I've just messed this up. Um, like, in the remainder of our time on this movie will be you know, be tainted because I've, I, I I don't think I spoke over him or anything, but it was just, you know, he was saying, let's get these, um, you know, load up these weapons. And I was like, these are scientific instruments. And he turned like, what, you know, like, oh, now you're going to make stuff up is what it felt like. And it wasn't, it was him being Packard going like, I'm in charge. We're killing this thing. So his thing is completely scenic, but he's just so powerful. Like he's just a presence. And, um, you know, he's also a very nice dude. There's a question I have that I didn't know if I was catching a nuance and I'm not even sure that this was ever spoken about. But in the scene where John C. Riley as Marlowe meets Samuel L. Jackson as Packard mm-hmm. and realizes Packard's the ranking officer there, mm-hmm. that wouldn't have likely been the case in World War II because it was still basically a segregated military. Sure. And it's not in the script. There's no word spoken about it. But I feel like I see John C. Riley register that and almost kind of go, okay, cool. But nothing's spoken. And it does feel like there's a moment there where he has to, as his character and his acting process, process that. I think so. Really? Oh, I, I, it's not in the script and we never talked about it, but John C. Riley doesn't do anything lightly. John C. (laughs) Riley gets into the world of, of everything he does. I mean, this is the first thing I've worked on with him, but I can tell you that like he does the work like, and he's not a showboat and he's not, you know, He's not doing it for anyone's benefit but what he wants to go into the lens. Uh, But he has a process where he, like, wants to get himself worked up to a point where, you know, like, he's not having idle chit-chat right moments before we take – he's loose and fun and, and, you know, amazing to have on set and stuff. But he's, like – some of that stuff, he needed it to come from a place, you know, like – and I think that's what informs so much of the nuance of, like, you know, uh, it's a real no-no, sir, and uh, just some of his sort of – historical references. I love the scene uh, when they're repairing that boat, when he says to, says to Tom, like, hold the phone now, Churchill, <laughs> yeah. hold the phone a second, Churchill. Um, I think that I would guess that if you were to have John C. Riley on this program, he would say like, yeah, that's definitely something that I allowed to run through my brain of like, I'm reading his insignias. He outranks me. You know, he's probably younger than I am. And, and, is uh, an African-American and huh, this is a thing. Like, I don't know. John C. Riley, I think was able to really create a sense of, of reality in what could have been a really slapstick thing in a bad way. Like it's refreshing for a blockbuster, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his, like even his thing of like, this is amazing that you're here because I've dreamt of all this other stuff, but you're real. You are real. Right. right? right you know, yeah. like, and he does it in this really, needy and and vulnerable way um yeah and then of course so much of what made the movie and made the trailer is stuff that he's made up like he there's a lot of improvisation yeah, in the movie you can tell, yeah. and um and it's stuff that he's you know it's 
all character and it's all truth. Like it's, it's really lovely. All right. Last question. There's Uh-oh. an amazing cut between Kong letting a soldier fall into his mouth and you eating a sandwich. Mm-hmm. Was that in the script or was mm-hmm. that? Okay. It was. Yeah. yeah. All right. Was- uh, the script had it as an, a- we shot it as an apple and we shot it as a peanut butter sandwich. Um, huh. That's my friend Josh Funk, who actually was brought on the movie to teach improv uh, for a few weeks at the beginning to especially the Sky Devils. Jordan really wants uh, – he did the same thing on Kings of Summer. Craig Kukowski came to Ohio to Sugar and Falls to teach the young cast to do some workshops with them just so that – uh, Jordan really wants his actors living in those skins as those characters. Like after we've rolled camera uh, and and uh, before he's called action and if he never calls cut, he wants them to be – you know, in that mindset. So there's plenty of footage in um, in Kings of Summer that uh, the kids didn't think we were rolling yet. Uh-huh. Like they were just being teenagers punching each other in the arms and stuff. And uh, and Jordan had a code word with the camera crew uh, and he would say that and they would, you know, roll and point the camera and everybody would face away and be quiet. But it wasn't like a settled set. Like they were just capturing these guys being them and tons of it's in the movie. And there's a little bit of that of us hanging out in the forests and stuff um, in the jungles and in the grass and the bamboo forest that there, there's some shots like that. Some of the beauty stuff, some of the nature stuff. Um, what was the question? Oh, the, you answered oh, whether, it. oh, whether it was yeah. scripted. So but I, I love the fact that he brings in an improv coach as if a film like this would normally bring in like Dale died to do a military right. boot camp for five days mm-hmm. for the actors. But um, no, he did it with uh, with those guys, and um, and then because Funk was with us in Hawaii, uh, we Josh and I were going to go play golf one day, and um, and he's like, I can't I have a fitting, and I was like, Oh, for what? And he's like, I guess I'm playing like a crew chief. <laughs> and uh, then he went and flew around on helicopters, uh, and then he went and did a, a studio day where, you know, on a gimbal uh, on a the hull of a, an aircraft, um, and he was in a harness. They had him falling and doing that flip over and over and over again. Wow. Um, and then it cuts to me biting the sandwich, which is 100% in the script, yeah. That's great. Yep. Well, thank you, Mark. Oh, my goodness. great to talk to you about this. Oh, thank you for having me. This is great. Congratulations. And you're coming up in Jumanji, right? Yeah, I have a small role in Jumanji. There's a very fun remake uh, coming Christmas 2016, uh, 2017 uh, of Jumanji that um, I think there's a trailer out now from CinemaCon, but it's a little bit Freaky Friday and a little bit Breakfast Club and very Jumanji. Yeah, it's it's a really fun... Uh, continuation of the Jumanji lore. Okay, we'll leave it with that. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you to my friend Mark Evan Jackson for that interview, and thank you to you, my friend, the listener, for doing your part. You can do more by leaving a review for this podcast on iTunes, which helps helps keeps its visibility. Oh, God. I can't talk. Which helps keeps its visibility. Even when I try... I'm adding plurals. You know what I mean. You can learn more about the show at Earwolf.com, on Twitter, at I Was There Too, or at Matt Gorley. Same with Instagram and Letterboxd, where I keep lists of all the movies that I've watched for this show, as well as all the little films that are referenced in the theme song taglines. But before I go, do you trust me? If the answer is no, I certainly understand that. If the answer is yes, then have I got something for you. My beloved and betrothed, Amanda Lund, created a brilliant podcast miniseries called The Complete Woman, I don't know, a year or two ago, for Howl.fm. Now, she's following it up with a second series called Complete Joy, and it's fantastic. So much so that I would love to play a little bit of it for you now, in hopes that you will sign up to Stitcher Premium slash Howl.fm whatever it is at whatever time this comes out, but you can access it from both. And this podcast is worth the small subscription price alone. Here's a little clip where Amanda plays Maribel May, happiness expert and 1960s not feminist. I hope you enjoy it as much as I have. Now many of you say, but Maribel, there isn't a creative bone in my body. Well, I can think of one person who might be able to help you with that. You! But not this old bag-of-bones version of you, your inner child. Sit in a peaceful setting, light a fire, have a few jugs of wine, and I guarantee your inner child will reveal herself to you. And she just might have a few ideas on how to get you started on your creative journey. Here's just a little conversation I had with my inner child, Maribel. 
Well, hello, little Maribel. Hi, big Maribel. Now, Maribel, what are some of your favorite things to do? I like to eat chocolate. I like to ballet, and I love to catch butterflies with my hands. Enjoy it while it lasts, because as you get older, you have no time for those things. We don't. No, we're too busy. Too busy doing what? Why we're cooking and cleaning and raising children and and doing things in the bedroom with our husband. What about the fun times? There are certain fun times, but they're different. You know, the fun times when everyone's in bed and you sneak out to the fridge and eat the remaining chocolate cake. Oh, gee, I don't want to grow up. Well, you have to, Maribel. I won't. I won't turn into you. I won't. What's wrong with me? Why you're not young. You're not carefree, and you don't seem to care about the things you used to. Well, a lot of people tell me I don't look a day over twenty-two. You don't look a day over forty, Maribel. You're a brat. You are too. I'm not a brat. Yes, you are. I'm a nice lady. I'm a nice lady too. You're just a little bitch. Well, you're a big one. Oh, now I remember why I never liked you. Well, I don't like who I turn into. So you know what? I might just play with the knives tonight. Oh, Maribel. Well, you have fun with your knives. And one thing before I go. What's that, Maribel? Tonight, your parents are having company over. You'll get it into your tiny little brain that you need to go out into the shed and light the packing excelsior on fire. Don't do it. It ruins everything. Uncle Bernie is burnt to a crisp. There's packing excelsior in the barn. Maribel, come back. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. <laughs> Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Yuffie X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris, and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.